Hello, and welcome to this eighth episode of Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra's podcast, Beyond the Score. Today, we bring you a discussion about intersectionality in the arts. Joining us today are composer and LACO artistic advisor Derek Spiva, music director and conductor of Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, Ernest Harrison, and executive director of Trans Chorus of Los Angeles, Catherine Davis. Moderating this discussion is our own Coleman Richardson. Coleman, take it away. Welcome to another isolated episode of Lego's podcast. I'm Coleman Richardson, and with me today we have three very special guests. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. I am Catherine Davis. I'm the executive director of the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I appreciate Coleman and the invite to be here. We're very happy to, to join the group. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ernest Harrison. I'm the music director for the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles. My pronouns are he, him, and I also am very glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. My name is Derek Spiva. I am a composer, and I'm also the artistic advisor for Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and pronouns he, him, and I am very happy to be here. There's a lot going on in the world. It's June 2020, which has felt like both a really fast and slow uh, time with COVID-19. It's Pride Month. There's been a massive reaction to several murders by the hands of police officers. And as arts organizations, we've all had to respond to this and sort of take note of what we have and what we can do. And and it's been a really introspective time. Uh, and I know here at LACO, we've had a lot of self-examination and self-reflection that's going to keep going on, but figured uh, with your two organizations, how how have you, and Derek too, you have bridged to everywhere, your wonderful ensemble, how have you all responded to uh, everything? <laughs> Who wants to go first? Uh, I can go. Um, yeah. So uh, for me personally, as a composer and a uh, performer, um, I was a bit, uh, I felt a bit useless when COVID happened because, you know, I think like the, the inclination as a member of society is like, how can I help? But the only way that I felt like I could help was to stay at home. And that was difficult for me because I felt I you could see that there's help needed but the only thing I could do was like remove myself from society to help and so that was difficult and then um and then being an artist you know there's this kind of underlying thing that where you um you know that your contribution to humanity is like very psychological right it's very like oriented in making people uh feel um, a certain way and it really kind of gets at people's hearts and their minds and and their and their souls but sometimes that tends to be abstract for me when there's like something so direct that needs attention and the same thing happened when George Floyd in a long line of people who have been killed by the police when that video came out it was like another one on the list for me and my family but it was also just another moment where I was like, man, you know, what am I going to do? I'm just going to go play some music while people are getting killed. Like that, but every single time, like that's a, it's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. And so the way that I reacted 
was, uh, you know, when I started talking with uh, Bridge to Everywhere, the only thing that I could think of personally, uh, you know, people were getting arguments on Facebook and I have started having to, I was just referring people to a bunch of books and documentaries that talk about reconstruction and the, and, and the reason why things are in the state that they're in, because a lot of people just don't know. I got hundreds of messages of people. I didn't know about all this. I didn't, yeah. this is part of the deal, you know? And um, the same thing with the history of policing, you know, the first, the first units for policing was slave catching. And so like, yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of people that didn't know that. And um, so what ended up kind of happening is, is I was like, well, if, if maybe what I can do and what Bridge to Everywhere can do is just be to set up a, a scenario in which people can receive music, but also be more educated with what's going on so that they can't say that they didn't know. And so what we started to do was we started this thing called Bridge 2, and then we just do it Bridge 2 wherever we live. And then we're just trying to reach out to our neighbors and do concerts like within our communities and just talk to them throughout, either throughout the concert, after the concert, and just talk to them and just make sure that at least the people that I have access to in my area know and can understand some of these things so that when people are confronted with these scenarios, these real life implication like scenarios that, that we're dealing with right now, they don't kind of resort to like the old tropes of, of dialogue, like being upset because there's people looting down in yeah. Santa Monica and they're taking shoes when the first looting started in 1492 and just continued all the way, <laughs> you know, today. And there's, you know, so a lot of education, it's a lot of like educated education attached to music performance and speaking with your neighbors because in Los Angeles, it's hard to know your neighbors because everyone's always moving. Like, you know, people sit in traffic before COVID. And so there's just not a lot of, for a lot of people in town, there's, there's not a lot of uh, real substantive interaction with their neighbors, at least in my experience. Um, yeah. So, so that's what, that's what we've been doing. We've just been, you know, we started that Bridge 2 concert series, so everybody lives in a different area, and they've just been trying to, like, do concerts in their neighborhood, but then talk to their neighbors about leaving leaving the option open for their neighbors to ask questions, to discuss things, to open a dialogue, you know, so that um, so that people can just generally foster a more clear understanding of, of where we're all at and, like, what makes sense. Uh, what makes sense to build a better future moving forward. You know. Thank you. Who wants to go next? Uh, I, I can go next. Um, we're in a little different situation in that, you know, we're, we're a small organization, we're relatively new, and we, for, for instance, my, I'm a scientist and I work in the, I, I don't work in the arts on, as a, on a regular basis. This is a, an avocation rather than vocation for me. And, and I, I find it really interesting when I speak to my friends who are in the arts all the time and, and how they are perceiving things. And But I, I think what Derek said is, is really one of the things we've tried to do is begin to talk to our neighbors, begin to talk to other members of the chorus and see where they're headed, how they perceive things. Uh, you know, I, I lived most of my life as a, with white male privilege. I, I was a, you know, a dean of a college as a white man and, and I was a professor. And so I, I, I had those things. The other side of that coin is it was in Canada. 
and I, I could see what was happening in the States. And I, I had friends and colleagues in the States, but I was always, I've always been taken by the, the birth of the United States is a, you know, in a violent sense with, with a war and, and the, the, the racist um, development of the country is, has really uh, bothered and fascinated me all at the same time. And it's one of the reasons when I came and, and lived here deciding whether I wanted to take citizenship out in this country, whether I wanted to be a citizen of this country. And I talk to people about that and, and try and get their perspective. We've brought in uh, a number of speakers. We have a rehearsal every Sunday. We've brought in speakers every week, including trans women of color, which we thought was really important because that's a group that's particularly, particularly targeted and um, has been going through a lot, as well as the youth and trans youth are, are in a difficulty. We have some people who are living at the center and you know, they're it's pretty difficult for them right now. They're going through a lot of difficulty. So we do talk about that during the course of the hour and a half rehearsal. And also we encourage people to be out in the community. And uh, last Sunday or uh, this, last Sunday, a number of our members went to the march, the protest. I'm not, I'm unable to do that. I'm in the vulnerable group of being a senior, and uh, I, I just can't take a chance on on doing that. But I wish I were. I wish I could be out there. And uh, certainly, we kept in contact and talked about it a lot. I, I agree with Derek that, that we need a dialogue, and we've encouraged people to to contact either their politicians or whoever to try and see what they're doing to make change. And we're also being quite active in trying to get people registered to vote and vote and uh, try and make change that way. It's a long process and um, yeah, it's, it's going to take a while. But I, I think one of the main things that, you know, we've tried to do as, as what Derek has talked about is, is open a dialogue, try to get people to talk to one another, um, not only talk to one another, but more importantly, listen to one another, yes. listen to what they're saying. <laughs> And especially people, you know, like me, as I've said, I've had white privilege all my life. Listen to the things. I talk with Abdullah Hall every day we talk. And we, we've been talking a lot about the issues surrounding what's going on, the violence and that sort of thing. And it, it's, it's very interesting to me to hear their perspective on, you know, I mean, I remember them telling me that they used to own a BMW. And they sold it because they were getting tired of being pulled over by the police asking if this was their BMW. So, I, you know, those things just go, wow, I can't, I, you know, I, I haven't lived that reality. And, I, and it's, it's difficult, but I'm learning and I'm becoming more um, proactive in that sense. So I think this is a big turning point. I hope it doesn't stop. I lived through when Martin Luther King did the marches and that, and it had big momentum and then psh, kind of fizzled out. We need to continue to do this, and it's good to see the young people, you know, in our course particularly, but all over, taking a, um, a stand and being proactive in these things. It's nice to see. Thank you. Um, one of the things that um, GMCLA has been allowed to do, or has been able to do, I should say, is actually one of the things that Catherine just mentioned, which is this idea of making sure that we create a space for people to have open conversations about race and understand to some degree the experiences of black people in America, people of color in America. Um, two weeks ago, one of our 
members, Daniel Rosen, hosted a Zoom gathering of about 60 or 70 of our GMCLA members. And it's a, he calls it storytelling or story time. Uh, they do it, I think, once a month. But this one was dedicated to talking about race relations, about the issues of race. They started with a 20-minute talk just about explaining this terminology that you know, we are hearing in media right now. Because a lot of people, if you're not racially aware, socially aware, if you've never had to be, a lot of this terminology is new. So we talked about what does it mean um, to benefit from white privilege? What is white privilege? What is systemic racism? Um, just all of these different terms that, that, that we're hearing a lot in media. And then we have five members of color from GMCLA simply talk about their experiences with the police, their experiences of being black in America, just to really open up people's minds and, and, and start that conversation. So I thought that was a very important moment for our ensemble. Secondly, we have, of course, been you know putting out several virtual choirs as every other choir has been doing, but we've been, <laughs> we have uh, made sure that they were socially relevant pieces to some degree um, so that even though we weren't able to get together and make music in person, the music making that we were doing virtually was not just meaningful in that we're making music, it was meaningful in that its message was relevant to what's happening right now. And then third, although this is not directly related to GMCLA, but the presence of the members at the protests has been very, very inspiring to me because I am, uh, I think Catherine mentioned this, I, I, I'm immunocompromised and my, my partner has severe, very, very severe asthma. So unfortunately we can't participate in any of these things, but to see how they have organized and been so adamant to be at every protest, to be out there, to be supporting uh, the cause, to, make, to be making sure that black voices are being centered and are being heard. It's been very much a blessing to me as somebody who's, you know, been homebound and unable to participate like I would like to. So those are the things that kind of jumped to my, my mind. I just want to follow up on uh, what Ernest said and say that, like, I definitely share that, like, angst to want to get out in the street. Obviously, I can't do that, too, because my wife is has very severe asthma and I can't be bringing anything in the house. And that made me feel there were some difficult feelings for me because especially after that video came out of George Floyd, I just wanted to go out there and fight. I just wanted to go and fight <laughs> the cops, man. I was ready. I was pacing around the house. Kim was trying to calm me down. And I, all I could think of was, well, you know, and then it's there's another frustration too, because, you know, when you're online, people are like, oh, if you're silent, you're complicit. I'm not complicit in nothing. Like, I know that's wrong. And, um, but the, I think that the other thing that I had, that my dad talked to me about is he's just like, look, man, if you're not on the, uh, not out on the street, like people on the street are going to bring physical attention to the issue because they're physically there. But the front lines doesn't just exist on the street. The front lines exist wherever you confronting racism directly, wherever it's at. And that can be in the office that can be online. That So if you're confronting racism, wherever you're at, there's some people on the street that are doing it, and there's other people that are in other areas that are doing it. And everywhere that happens is the front lines. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Something that really gave me peace. After the George Floyd murder, I spent 
five days in fury. I can't explain. That's the only way I know to explain it. Just completely engulfed in anger and wanting to do something, wanting to get out in the streets and, and not being able to was all consuming for quite some time. And the thing that gave me peace was understanding that there's a difference between marching and protesting. People were in the streets marching and I appreciated that. I couldn't participate in that regard, but I can protest. I can protest from my home. I can protest with my art. You can protest with your dollars. So I really had to, that, that, that understanding gave me a lot of peace. And as an artist, as a poet, I have been writing frantically. As a composer, I have been composing frantically because that is my form of protest. And it is the only thing that has given me peace about some of this situation that's going on. That's just one to say that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing that for me as like, you know, Catherine, you talked about privilege and I'm, you know, visibly I'm, I'm a white dude very privileged. I'm bi, but that's not something that people see, uh, you know, outwardly. But the most amazing thing for me is how structurally difficult it's been for people to do the work. This year, everybody started talking about Juneteenth. I've known about Juneteenth for quite a while. I grew up in West Virginia. I went to an HBCU but I didn't know about it till I went to an HBCU. (laughs) Um, You know, that's you know, that's a good start, but that, you know, that was 18 years too late, (laughs) you know, to even start talking about American history, Black history, and how they're one and the same. There's a lot of, in in education and in in art, a lot, it seems to be like, it it seems to be like, oh, by the way, this is, uh, you know, Black History Month. This is, you know, as if like, and and as a result, it's gotten very uh, oversimplified. And it's just been frustrating to to watch people just now realize like, oh, there are other people in the world, <laughs> you know? In the arts particularly, uh, it's been really interesting to see how our organization uh, as an orchestra has responded because, I mean, Western classical music is pretty vanilla. And obviously there's been quite a quite a bit of change in, in representation, but it's still like there's a lot uh, of work to do still. We've been working on, on equity and inclusion and everything for a while, but it, it still feels like there's always going to be more to do. I have a question for Catherine. The... the Catherine, I don't have like personal experience with the uh, with the t- the time of Dr. King because I just wasn't around then. But uh, but from from my observation, like historically of what it looked like back then versus what it looked like now in the kind of consciousness of like a broad coalition of people pushing for change. Do you feel like you see like? a difference in like the the amount of force that's being exerted to demand for some serious change and like accountability now versus back then well i do but i you know i have to put a little reservation around that i was an observer from canada at the time i i was living in toronto and we would watch this on the news and see things and it was mainly the news that was focused on you know, the South and, and where uh, Dr. King was marching and, and the people involved there, as opposed to 
what was happening, for instance, in California or in Massachusetts or North Dakota. Now we're seeing it, and because of social media, I think things have changed. You know, younger people, especially, and I include you all in that, um, opposed to me, but the communication is much more open and broad, and the marching is is across the country. Didn't see that then. You, you would see marches, uh, again, maybe because I was, you know, not in the States and not getting the same kind of news that you were, but... Uh, I, I find it to be much broader and much more involved this time. Uh, my only hope is that, uh, you know, as COVID um, becomes less the social, uh, less an issue within the, the context of our everyday lives, that these things will not die out, that the protests will continue, that the, the work that people are trying to do to continue to make change will happen. And it's good to see questioning of police forces and their training and, and, and trying to reduce the military influence on the police. Um, I, I, one of the things that surprised me the first time I ever came to the States as a child uh, was to see police with guns. In Toronto, they didn't carry weapons. You know, that they, they were there to serve and protect kind of thing. So the, it, it's really a different you know, people think, oh, Canada is the same as United States. There's no difference. But it's not. There's, there, there is quite a bit of difference. I was often asked after I came back from graduate school, what's the difference between Americans and Canadians? And my um, feeling was, well, Americans tend to want everything for themselves. They have to be number one. Whereas in Canada, you know, we're happy to help out and be get along and, and work together. So it... it it's a, a, a difference in that sense. But yeah, I, I, I think now, I, and I hope it continues, I, that people continue to, to work. And it's nice seeing younger people being very vocal, really standing up and saying, hey, I'm not taking this crap from you old fogies anymore. This has got to change. We have to make changes to, to, to make things better for everyone. So that, that gives me hope. And um, I, you know, but what, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens, how it plays out, how involved the politicians are. Certainly, November is a, yeah, a, a cutting change in in United States and how it goes. And that's why I mentioned before we're trying to engage our our members to make sure they and all their friends and everyone they know gets registered and votes. And you know, every every vote counts, as we know. So, those are the things. Yeah, one of the things that we are also doing is, you know, we've been involved in prides and, and we've been sending our music out to all the prides and a number of other events as well. So that we are um, active as, as much as we can be in that. We are, we've just made a fabulous agreement, <laughs> I think anyway, with a church in, um, in LA that's a very um, LGBTQ friendly church. And we are going to, in the fall, as soon as we get the, the regulations sorted out and all of that, we're going to go into that church and do a production where we sing so we can be socially distanced, so we can um, sing as a chorus. Um, you know, I mean, we've all tried to do that on Zoom and any other um, kind of platform that you can imagine, and it just doesn't work. And we don't have the funds to do a lot of editing and post-recording you know, sorting out. So it, it's just been difficult for us in that way. 
But those are the things, you know, give me hope <laughs> because our, our members have been engaged and we do have that social consciousness in terms of, uh, especially with, with respect, as I mentioned before, black trans women who are brutally treated in, in this world. And, and it's sad. We've, we lose so many and we have a, it's called Transgender Day of Remembrance every year and we read all the names and it just, it, it tears your heart out. I mean, there was one woman recently found that she had her legs cut off after she'd been murdered. Yeah, it, it, it astounds me that people can be this horrible, but, but they're out there and they're doing the stuff and we really need to continue to work hard to address it. So. I think what's very interesting is that COVID seems to be a double-edged sword because it's very painful and it's taking a lot of people out of our society. But because it swept away all of the distractions, the entertainment and the distractions that we had, and then our actions as a society, as we interact with each other, are now on full display and you can't turn away. There's no basketball game that you can turn to or some baseball game where you can just distract yourself. And so our, our, our literal interactions with each other are on full display. You've got people getting caught doing microaggression, racism, just folks walking down the street, you know, yelling at somebody for having a sign out or, you know, some stuff like that. And then you've got George Floyd and everybody else, and no one can look away. No one can, there's nothing else to do but confront like how we treat one another. And I think a lot of people were horrified, and a lot of young people are just like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna live the rest of my life like this. Like you guys may have done it, but that's not what's gonna happen to me. And I think in regards to, in regards to classical music, I think that like. With Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra and a lot of orchestras, there's a lot of, I think there's younger people that really want to have an, a, an impact on the classical community because they know that there's something wrong. But there's also just like a system, like a systematic situation in place that's just going to make a lot of those changes very difficult until the until like core elements of the system are, are like challenged, you know. And... Um, that's that and that's part of that work that that Ernest was talking about you know that's part of that that where like you know there's the, the front line on the street but then the other stuff is is you gotta you know you gotta deal with this stuff this this stuff in the office this stuff in the the, the systematic part of it um and that's part of like that that long-term those those long-term that long-term approach to to really like change it's been astonishing to me that we finally see like the confederate flag coming down right like what <laughs> how 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 has that taken so long and some of those statues to come down i keep asking myself would it be acceptable if somebody just had a nazi flag waving on public grounds would that be like where you just walk out in the public and then the, the swastika is just waving in the front of the state capitol or something? Like, that wouldn't be acceptable at all. But that's how that felt for Black folk. That's how that felt, watching and seeing all that stuff. And it just, it never made any sense. And then like just 
just now, like three, four weeks ago, the Confederacy is finally fully losing the war that they've, they militarily lost a hundred and something years ago, but now they have to fully lose it. And they're just now fully losing it. That's wild. It's a, it's a wild time right now. It amazes me how many things, even though West Virginia was formed to join the Union, one of my best friends went to Stonewall Middle School because Stonewall Jackson was from West Virginia, although there's a statue of Abraham Lincoln at the Capitol and a statue of Stonewall Jackson, like, 100 feet away. That's insane. <laughs> like, that's absolutely insane. We treat it so differently here than anywhere else in the world. And it's it's just really bizarre. And yeah, no, I, the, this is way overdue. <laughs> uh, but I do think that you're right in that like COVID forced everybody to look, you know, symbols are just the beginning. As, as someone who grew up, I'm from Alabama, as someone who grew up in the South, this moment where we are seeing statues come down, where we are seeing Confederate flags being banned in certain spaces, where we are seeing high schools and universities and all these different spaces being renamed, I can tell you with every everything that is within me, this is a moment I never thought I would see. I, you know, my high school was across the street from Robert E. Lee High School in Montgomery, Alabama. I mean, these are things that, these are arguments that you know, I, to speak for the black people that I know in in the South, we had reckoned within ourselves that we would never be able to solve or have. But this moment in time has made us as a country look at and deal with our foundational beliefs, look at the foundations of this country, and deal with the issues that are there. And it's racism. Racism is at the very foundation of this country. And once the veneers have been removed, all of the, the gloss of what America is, COVID removed all of that. It, it was one of the great equalizers of our time. It, it just removed everything. And what do we have left? Black people still being killed in the streets. Black trans women still being murdered. These, these same things were still going on when we get to the very foundation of our country. And I am so hopeful. In, in the midst of my sadness, in the midst of my anger, I am so hopeful for change. I wrote uh, a post a couple of weeks ago um, and put it up on Facebook and simply said, the worst thing that America could do to black people at this point is to give us hope that there was going to be true change and then take it away. I am so hopeful that true change is going to happen now. I really, really am. Yeah, I, that's what I was saying, you know, when I was talking about it before, I, as, as you've all mentioned, the COVID uh, happening is, um, it's funny, uh, Abdul and I talked about this. It was kind of like God saying, okay, world, you're all screwed up. Take a step back and let's take a look at what's going on. And this has given the United States an opportunity to look. And I mean, every country to look at what's happening in their countries you know, and see what these social issues, the impact of social issues on people and, and how they're how they're progressing or not progressing. And I, I agree, Ernest, I, I, you know, if once COVID's over, I, I hope that that momentum that we're building and that we've been building will continue to go and it won't slow down, it won't stop, it won't 
peter out as people get back into the everyday doldrums of life. It it doesn't look like it's going to, but you know, it, once you get back into your life and you're busy trying to make a living and and do the things that you normally do, it 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 can can be stifling in terms of the the social move, social activities and uh, social well-being things that you're doing. So, yeah, it's. I, I hope that it does continue, and I have. It's good to see young people involved and and being really involved, not just peripherally involved. So that's cool. On that note, since we've only got a little bit more time left, uh, why don't we wrap it up by talking about what we think the future is going to be like? What what in in terms of art and society and everything like, what comes after this? And and I'm hopeful, <laughs> but. You know what? What does that look like? Uh, I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, I, I think there's like I know in the world of classical music, I think people having to familiarize themselves with mics and recordings uh, is going to open the door for for a more collaboration between genres because there are other genres that I think would be like that you could do some really cool collaborations with if classical musicians were a little bit more comfortable with technology. So I think there's, there's going to be a lot of potential there. And um, I also really love that people are questioning man-made boundaries, man-made cultural boundaries, right? Why is it that we have this policy? That doesn't make any sense. And then just saying, wait a minute, there's no law that says that I can't do this artistically <laughs> and work with it. And I really like that. I really like people just, just asking real, real hard questions about like things that people have done in the past just because they've seen other people, you know, do them, proceed that way. And then just declaring, you know, no, that, that that's not the way. And let's let's go a different way because that way is not, it leads us to the point that we're in, not where we want to go, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, very excited, <laughs> very excited to see, to see how, how, how we, how we move forward. I think we're going to get some change going because the other thing is, is the one thing that Americans love to do is we all we we also like to hold other people accountable for their own actions, and now that everybody's got a phone in their hand, <laughs> everybody's got a phone in their hand, if you start popping off, somebody's gonna get you to say, you know, what do you think about that? And they're gonna have their phone like right there, and then people will have to atone for their own behavior right there in that moment, and I think that that that. There has never been a time in human history where people have to atone for their behavior so quickly uh, uh, with everybody involved than than today. So um, so that that does give me some uh, uh, that does give me um, some hope for, for the future. So I was I was going to um, say the same thing that Derek said about you know being accountable now. You, you're on you have to realize you're being videotaped i mean i'm being videotaped right now or videoed and and so not that i'm doing anything wrong i hope but you know we are accountable we are being seen um one of the things that we have uh, done in the course we had a change in leadership about a year and a half ago to, and and one of the things that we were concerned about as the new leaders was that 
we tended to look at ourselves in the chorus as victims. We, you know, we're victims of, as trans people, we're victimized all the time. And we just said, we can't continue to do that. If you do that, you will be. And so we've, we transformed into, um, you know, we sing so that we can take ourselves from victim to victorious. And we want to see that happen within the, our community. We, we don't want to emphasize all the time, although it's important to realize the deaths of, of people. We also want to emphasize, look at the leaders in our community, look at some of the black women of color who are, you know, are doing wonderful things in leadership and healthcare and, and corporate work and, and in the entertainment industry. Um, let's use them as role models as well and, and, and look at those things. And I think that that has to happen in every community. Start being, no, you, you're not going to make me a victim. I'm going to be who I, I have to be. And so we've taken that stand and tried to focus our music that way so that our music is, is singing more songs that relate to being um, positive, uh, being forthright about who we are and not hiding in the shadows and just moving ahead in that sense. So um, I hope that continues and I hope that that, that will be something that our chorus will continue to do as, uh, as younger people start to take over the chorus and, and move ahead with it. And it's been, it's been a, a joy working with Abdullah, who is uh, very creative as well as very progressive, and to see the, the things that, that they're doing and to support them and, and, and help them in their vision has been been a lot of fun for me. As I said, I'm a scientist. I'm not, a, I'm not an artist in, in, by any stretch, uh, although I do love the arts and I've been involved in music a lot in my life, but not, not as a, you know, a profession. It's been an avocation. So um, hopefully those things will continue. I, 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 that's the main thing we need. You can't take your foot off the gas. It's on. Keep it, keep it going. So, and it's great to hear all of you people talking about this and where your what your visions are. It's wonderful to share those. It is my hope more than anything that this moment changes the stories that we tell and who has a seat at the table or who gets to have a seat at the table. I think you mentioned earlier about the vanilla-ness of westernized high art traditional classical music. It is my hope that in this moment, more voices of color become centralized in that particular medium. Um, and and it, I hope that this will really change the idea of, of blackness in music altogether, that we will shift from in the choral world doing a spiritual or gospel piece or piece of uh, what we call world music at the end of a concert to have a big yay moment that will shift from that and start to realize how many people of color write westernized traditional high art classical music that is not necessarily spiritual themed or gospel themed, but it's all encompassing. I hope that in the orchestral world, we will stop getting Beethoven five ways or, you know, another celebration of, of Mozart or whomever it happens to be and really start to become more inclusive because these old vanguards, these old traditions that celebrate this music, which I appreciate, which we need, which I love, 
often forget that it is those same voices who get to pick Beethoven this, for this season. Those same voices could pick a black composer. A, a, a female composer, a trans composer, that that voice, those same groups of people can, can we can expand the conversation. We have the power, uh, we have the time, and I, I really th those are the things that I'm I'm hopeful to see. Just to, I just want to add just a little bit onto that, right? Because what Ernest is talking about resonates with me in in a real profound way because there's a sense that when 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 we're asking to have a seat at the table there's some sort of a weird thing where people think that some other person at the table can't be there right or or that means that we can no longer play any more beethoven ever again right that there's got to be a, a there's a replacement thing but no one's ever been talking about that there's room for everybody and that's all that anybody wants is say, look at, there's so many concerts. There's so many. And then on each concert, there's five pieces. You have something like 50, 60 pieces go out in a season. We're just saying, there's plenty of room. for every, <laughs> Nothing has to be taken away. We just want to add to it. That's all. We just want to be part of the conversation. And so I just want to make sure that that's, that's, that's clear. Because a lot of times people... People, when when I know when I've said stuff like that, they're like, "Oh well, you know, what is it? What does that mean? Are we not gonna? We'll never hear Mozart again." Are you kidding me? Does that does that make it? <laughs> does it make any sense at all? I'm just saying that I just don't want to hear the same piece 86 times when there's a, just a, a just a little bit of an opportunity for us to just hear some other folks. Like that, that that's all we want. We, we just need more contrast. Life works in contrast. If there's no contrast in life, then it's boring, right? So, so I want some contrast to the music. That's all. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I mean, contrast, I haven't used that word, but I, I use diversity. We, we love to see diversity within our music, within, our, within people, within everything. And I, I, the interesting, I love that the new, the concept, well, it's not new, but the the discussion point that's being used about you know human rights just because i get human rights doesn't take away from yours it it you know <laughs> somebody's music doesn't take away from anybody else's music it and and that's the diversity that we need within this country within our professions within everything that's awesome one of the words that i whenever we were talking about what we were going to do for pride month and everything else that's going on one of the reasons you know intersectionalism is a crucial part of understanding humanity and and so is so are the arts and the arts need more of that um and uh yeah um i i've really enjoyed this uh any final thoughts before we wrap this up or no um, thank you all very much. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't wait to see you all again. Um, <laughs> this, uh, uh, both Trans Chorus and uh, Gay Men's Chorus of LA have been community partners for several years, and I, I, I love your organizations, and yeah, I, I, I can't wait. Um, and Derek, thank you for joining us as part of LACO and also part of, you know, the arts world. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, uh, thank you very much and um, stay safe. Thank you again to our guests for joining us today and to you, our loyal listeners, for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, this has been Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra's podcast, Beyond the Score.